It's a great pleasure to welcome you to this Queen's University Belfast In Conversation podcast and to introduce and speak with our distinguished guest today. I'm Richard English, Professor of Politics here at Queen's, and it's a privilege to welcome today one of the world's leading historians and biographers, Professor Roy Foster. Emeritus Professor of Irish History at the University of Oxford, Roy Foster is also Professor Emeritus of Irish History and Literature at Queen Mary University of London. His celebrated and influential books include Modern Ireland, 1600 to 1972, the two-volume W.B. Yeats, A Life, and Vivid Faces, The Revolutionary Generation in Ireland, 1890 to 1923. Professor Foster is, I'm delighted to say, no stranger to Queen's University, from which he holds an honorary degree and where he delivered the 2004 Wiles Lectures, subsequently published as another acclaimed book, Luck and the Irish, A Brief History of Change, 1970 to 2000. Roy Foster's books have won numerous prestigious awards, and he's a fellow of the British Academy, a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and an honorary member of the Royal Irish Academy. Our conversation today is gonna to focus on Roy Foster's most recent book, On Seamus Heaney, just published by Princeton University Press. Roy, in your book on Heaney, Yeats is a very strong presence. As I mentioned, you've written a magisterial biography of Yeats earlier in your career. Could you say something for listeners about the importance of Heaney's great predecessor for our understanding of Heaney himself? Thank you, Richard, and thank you to Queen's for hosting this. Um, Yeats is always a great presence for any Irish poet, and since his death in 1939, the very year that Heaney himself was born, um, it's been in some ways an inhibiting presence. For Yeats, for Heaney, I think the vital thing was to get out of that shadow. And his whole career, in some way, one of the themes in it, which I did for obvious reasons draw attention to, is a kind of negotiation with Yeats. Um, Interestingly, he comes to Yeats, he says himself, quite late. It's when he's in Berkeley, it's when he's getting to know the great historical novelist and critic Thomas Flanagan. It's at that stage in his life that he starts reading the or thinking more about the great Yeats-Joyce tradition. Previously, his influences have been Gerald Manley Hopkins with the Catholicism, the language, Patrick Kavanagh, the farming background. But Yeats becomes a presence in his mind from then on, from the early 70s. But interestingly, he writes an early essay called Yeats as an example with a query mark at the end of it. And that query stays for some time. When he wins the Nobel Prize, which Yeats, of course, has won before him, the comparisons are obviously made. They're, the, they're made even earlier than that. Robert Lowell reviewing North says that he's now clearly the best Irish poet since Yeats. Heaney is very careful at negotiating that rather it could be uh, counterproductive identification, as he is careful about negotiating counterproductive identifications all his life, you might say. And another theme that powerfully runs through the book, in addition to Yeats, is Heaney's complex and subtle response to the Northern Troubles. Can you elaborate on your reading of that aspect of his life and indeed its effect on his work? The Northern Troubles are, well, as I say, he's born in 1939, so he's a young man when things are kicking into action in the late 1960s. He goes on those marches, he writes about them, he writes poems that he never publishes, very angry poems about 
that stage of things, 1916, 8, 9, 70. Um, he is becoming a famous poet. He is a famous northerner. And there's a kind of weight on him to be the spokesman for his tribe. And that's the word he would have used himself. I'm, I'm not supplying that. So he, in many ways, has to evade that, but at the same time, not lose faith with the very real commitment he feels to the injustices that the Catholic and nationalist population of Northern Ireland have, have suffered. He's teaching at Queen's in the late 60s, early 70s. He's very near the storm centre of things. Queen's is itself in a particular position at this time where its traditional unionist establishment identity is being in some ways challenged. Heaney's move to the Republic of Ireland just about this time, before North is published, but in the early 70s, to County Wicklow, is seen by many as a political act as well as a personal decision. He gives many interviews about this through his life, not all of them completely consistent, but generally saying the same thing, that going south was a creative decision, a family decision. It was in no way turning his back on what he often called the squalor of sectarian warfare that was breaking out in the north. But North itself, that great volume of poetry, a key volume in Irish literary history as well as in Heaney's development, makes it very clear just how and how deeply the themes of antagonism and hatred and killing and injustice had gone into his consciousness as well as into his um, into his observed experience, not perhaps his personal experience, because he makes it very clear that his family were on very good terms with their rural Protestant neighbours, that he himself moved very easily, as he did all his life, through all sorts of levels of society, that his collaboration with friends like Michael Longley and David Hammond were very much part of his cultural uh, achievement and part of his cultural growing up as well at this time. But at the same time, he had a tribe and that tribe inflected the way that he saw what was happening all around in the north. And you mentioned Queen's University there, Roy, and you also earlier mentioned Berkeley. Uh, Heaney also held positions at Oxford, at, at Harvard. Could you say something on his engagement with universities, what that meant for him, what that involved in terms of challenges, what that involved in terms of opportunities? It's not only universities, it's the whole world of teaching. He began his life as a teacher and he was such a brilliant teacher that in fact he was hauled out of the classroom, so to speak, by his boss in the teacher training college who said he's got to teach the others how to teach because he's such a brilliant teacher and that was that was true all his life. In the institutions he was involved with, we shouldn't forget Carsford College, the teacher training college in Dublin, where he gave a great deal of devoted service and ran the English department, played a very full role until retiring to work half time, really, in, in America, in Harvard, and eventually as a full time writer. So he's involved with higher education institutions throughout his life. He um, he understands the way the universities work. He's Heaney is a worldly character in some ways, as well as uh, committed and brilliant poet and he's very good I think at handling people and institutions which isn't by any means true of 
most brilliant poets, including many of whom are of his friends. Um, but his, his, his own self-education, he's a very brilliant student at St. Columns then at Queen's, he thinks of starting a PhD, though he actually never does. His own self-education is against a very um, distinguished university background. And when he came to be Professor of Poetry at Visiting Post for four years at Oxford, I was there myself and saw a bit of him then and observed closely. He, he was swimming in the kind of waters that he knew. His lectures were extraordinary, the greatest lectures I've ever heard, I think. Um, he was in his element, but at the same time, a full-time university life would have constricted him too much as a poet. The Harvard Post was half-time and was kept so, and when he won the Nobel was given up in exchange for a kind of honorary position there. He, and another theme in my book is his identification with characters who slip away, who evade, who fly, and notably the um, mythical King Sweeney of Irish folklore, hilariously treated by Flann O'Brien at Swim Two Birds, and adopted by Heaney as someone who turns himself into a bird, who flits away, who turns up in familiar places, but abstracts himself from them, who is determined that he will keep at an angle to people who want to hear his story and believe it, even if it is true, as he says at the end of a wonderful poem, Sweeney, Ridiculous. So university life gives him a chance to slip in and out of an established world and to make a salary. You know, he's, he's living off a half salary and his wife's earnings and the earnings of a poet, which in the 19, certainly in the 1970s, 60s and 70s are very exiguous. It's not until he wins the Nobel Prize that I think he can be financially secure. But the university world is one he knew well and negotiated brilliantly. You mentioned, Roy, hearing Heaney lecture at Oxford. One of the things I found very powerful about the book was that in addition to its historical, its literary, its scholarly aspects, it's also a very personal book in some ways. You refer movingly to your own reactions when reading Heaney. Can you comment on the personal aspects of writing this book about somebody whom you're approaching not only as a subject for biography or a subject for history, but also as somebody whom you knew? Whom I knew, but not intimately. I mean, I wouldn't claim to have been a close friend. We were friends and we saw each other and I have some lovely dedications and books he gave me, but he, um, I, I, I was by no means an intimate friend. And one of the effects of the book, as I say in my introduction, is that it made me wish that I had known him better. I revered him and he inspired enormous affection in everyone who knew him. And I was certainly one of those people but I was born exactly 40 years after him in 1949, and I'm one of the generation who grew up reading his books as they came out. And again, as I say in the introduction, I can remember the hairs standing up on my head when I read North. I can remember tearing certain poems of his out of the paper or the magazine where they were first published and pinning them up on my notice board. I can remember reading his poems in his late collections about his dead father and his wish to establish a kind of contact with him, both when he was alive and after he died, and identified so strongly with that that I was immensely moved. So from both a personal and a generational level, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people who, for whom my relation with his work was part of my literary and 
developing life. And I think I'm one of many in that. Because one of the emphasis, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was that I've always been fascinated by the kind of contract that Heaney makes with his readers. Contract is too formal, but the kind of engagement, the way they trust him and the way he handles them. It's a very special bond between a poet and his readership and his or her readership. And it's very rare to see it in as intense a way as with Heaney, especially, of course, with his Irish readership. And that was demonstrated very powerfully, very movingly after he died, this enormous public outpouring of grief, the famous incident at the GAA semi-final where 80,000 people rose and stood two minutes silence. I mean, that comes from somewhere very special. And my personal connection to Heaney, to Heaney's work, was something which I constantly saw replicated in other people's connection to it, either on the simplest level because he reminded them of a rural world that some of them knew as children and was now irrevocably gone, or because he made not sense, but a kind of um, poetry out of the horrors that he was observing in the North, or simply because of the voice that came through his poems, which was a voice that you could trust. He could also handle themes, notably classical themes, which could seem could have seemed pretentious in other writers, but never did in him. He had uh, a, a marvellously delicate ear and sense of empathy in that way, too. All of this made me connect to his poetry ever since I began reading it in the late 1960s or the early 70s. Uh, but I'm not alone in this. And that's why I'd, I'd like to emphasize that that is an aspect of and that connection with his, the personal connection one feels with his poetry, which I wanted to explore and, if not explain, at least discuss in this um, very short book. Thank you. I, I want to ask in a moment about Heaney and, and history, but you've mentioned there what you call this the contract aspect of, of, of his unique relationship uh, to a wider audience. And you say that by the end of his life, he'd acquired what you describe as, quote, a position of overpowering but benign authority in Irish cultural life, which you just articulated very powerfully there again, Roy. How much of a legacy of that is going to endure? That during his lifetime, clearly, there was that extraordinary effect. Uh, is that something which will be enduringly a benign authority? Will that legacy be one which is powerfully enduring? I think it will. I think it has to be. Again, we could think about Yeats. It's very interesting. Yeats became, I guess, the national poet in a way that nobody until Heaney did again. Um, but I, I wrote an article once on Yeats's obituaries because they were so hostile, especially the Irish obituaries. Okay, there were people saying this was the greatest poet we've ever produced, all that, but they were outweighed by people saying, oh, he began so well. He wrote these charming little poems about mice bobbing around the um, wheat chest in the farmhouse parlour. And then he writes these revolting, sexual, atheistical, questioning, interrogative poems, um, holding up to scorn all we believe in. I mean, th that's an extreme version, but one or two um, obituaries read very much in that way. By Yeats died, as I say, in 1939. 
by the 1950s and certainly by the 1960s, the picture is completely reversed. All that Yeats had said and written and prophesied in some ways and celebrated about Ireland was now, if you like, coming into focus. And Yeats's voice and the respect that readers now placed in him was enormous. And of course, it still is. With Heaney, that trust, and I've talked about contracts and any contract relies on trust. The trust readers placed in Heaney was part of, I think, his extraordinary effect. And that trust will last. There's also the fact that since the 30s, when Yeats was being controversial, we've become, we Irish have become far more able for criticism, I think, and far more self-interrogative. And as a result of that, or connected with that, far more confident. And Heaney's questioning tone, the poems in North, the poems about violence, the poems in Station Island, which is a hinge of my treatment of him, because I think it's a that great series of poems is an absolute hinge moment in his life. These are about interrogating the past and about individual freedoms. Heaney wrote for uh, an audience who are coming to terms with those individual freedoms, who are coming out of, if you like, a, a more repressive and conventional period, in some ways pitchforked into it by facing up to the horrors of the North and where and how those came to be. So he his effect is an effect that reflects a historical moment in Irish consciousness, as well as a cultural, literary, aesthetic moment, because his poems were so wonderful. It's that historical importance and that historical weight and that historical gravitas which lies behind his work, which will mean that, and I think has a, we've already seen that its 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 impact will be continuing. It's not um, insignificant that the National Library in Dublin has two permanent exhibitions devoted to two writers. One, the great exhibition about Yeats and his life, um, still I think in the basement of the main building in um, Kildare Street, but the other, a very beautifully mounted exhibition, is in the extension of the library now in what used to be the old Bank of Ireland, uh, before that House of Parliament, um, and that is devoted to James Heaney, and that's a permanent exhibition, em emblematising, I think, the way that Heaney is, is a permanent possession of Irish culture and of all all island Irish culture. It's important to emphasise. And much of that interrogation that you're describing, Roy, about the violence, about the changing confidence in Ireland, about the growth of certain kinds of freedom, about the all-Ireland aspect, relates to Heaney's engagement not only with history, but its relationship with politics. You've written this book, as you put it, from the standpoint of a historian and a biographer, but fascinatingly, you also refer to Heaney's own preoccupation with history and to his sense that, as you put it, politics were indistinguishable or his sense that politics are indistinguishable from history. Can you talk about that way in which the historical was political with him and the, the way in which that affected not only his work, but also the legacy of its work? Yes, that quote that politics are indistinguishable from history jumped out at me. I read it in, a, it's in an unpublished letter of his, 1973 in Emory University. And it's a very defensive letter to somebody, I don't know who, 
Um, I've tried to find out who it's addressed to, but it's it's impossible to, to because it's not a complete letter. But it's it's a statement of faith in a sense of why he writes the way he does, of why he takes the stance he does, and n no other. It's also defending himself as a poet who writes about the Catholic nationalist tradition in books like Lament for the in poems like Lament for the Croppies and the the, the, the ship Eliza and the, the the poem about the Irish famine. It's a very interesting letter. But what struck me in it was this identification of politics and history. And I think it's important, again, to remember his friendship with Thomas Flanagan, who I think discussed these matters very closely with him. And some of his poems, actually, the poem Oysters came from uh, a trip with Thomas Flanagan to Galway. And it's one of the poems in which ancient history collides with modern history in the way that he knew so uniquely does. Um, I'm a historian who has written about poets and poetry. I see things chronologically. My treatment of Heaney and his work in this book is a chronological treatment, partly because I do see things biographically, but partly also because the books succeed each other in such a progression of its predecessor. And that's how I framed his life. But one thing that pulses through them is a sense of history. And early in his life, when he's trying genres of writing that he doesn't proceed with, including radio plays, there's endless drafts of a radio play about 1798, for instance. There's fragments of a hangover from that in a couple of poems about Belfast, Northern Ireland, but specifically Belfast in the 1790s, Linen Town and so forth. Um, he's very cognizant of historical pressures, historical forces, um, North, of course, looks back to Viking history and uses that and those themes and tropes of violence and, of course, a connection to the Nordic countries where the bog burials take place, which are so important to him. And for him, the, the excavation of the bog of history, which is famously used in North in, in, in an almost literalist way, is a metaphor that has begun even before he writes North and will continue through his life, right through to the later Tolland Man poems and some of the poems in the spirit level. Um, history is one way in which he tries to make sense of the inheritance of violence in Irish life, uh, but it's also a way in which he moves so easily from north to south, though he's um, essentially a figure from the north of Ireland that's very, very clear. And all his work, the early work, and indeed right to the end, shows that. He's also a figure who has absorbed Irish history, if you like, into himself. A tremendous reader and reading history was one of the things he did. Um, and I think his move from north to south, con controversial as it was in some circles at the time, is another way of framing that reflection and absorption of and treatment of Irish history as an all-island thing, which he does so wonderfully. It's an exhilarating and compelling book, Roy, and I look forward very much when times return to something normal to welcome you and welcoming you in person to Queen's to talk about it. There'll be great interest here in Belfast, here at Queen's, in meeting you in person. What you've done today, and thank you very much for that, is talk 
wide-rangingly, honestly, honestly, powerfully, articulately about this book, about the various aspects of it, your approach to him, to the book. Uh, Roy Foster on Seamus Heaney is published by Princeton University Press. I would very strongly recommend that everyone listening to this buys and reads it. It is a very, very powerful work. But today, for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us about your book, many, many thanks on behalf of Queensroy to Professor Roy Foster. Thank you, Richard. Enjoy your break. 